Hello, welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study here at Celebration Church. Welcome to all of you, as those, as well as those who uh, at other watch at our other campuses, those who do it in small group studies, and for the many, many people who actually watch this all over the world on the internet. Uh, we are in the uh, book of we call them books or letters, actually, First uh, Corinthians, and uh, one of Paul's more interesting letters and confusing <laughs> at the same time. This one's, this one's really kind of, this, is, I've always, this one I kind of struggle with, if you couldn't tell. You know, it's like, what, 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 what? So anyway, uh, uh, there's a couple other tricky ones too, but most of them are, most of the time he writes, he's very clear, he's brilliant, he's amazing. He certainly was the one who the Lord used to set the church uh, in the direction it would go for the next 2,000 years, which brings us to today. He is now, uh, we've broken it down into, uh, down to chapter 14 in the letter, <clears throat> and uh, what he's been talking about is uh, spiritual gifts, uh, supernatural giftings, where God actually shows up by the power of the Holy Spirit and enables people to do things, to know things, to have insights about things, to have faith for things that are dramatic and above the norm, uh, that can pray for people and they're just you know, they're healed uh, in, in dramatic fashion. These kinds of things that the church at this time was very, very familiar with and it was very common. Uh, what's interesting about it is you would get the sense if you just read this part of uh, Corinthians that these were really, really devout people who had no problems. <laughs> Of course, we know, reading the letter so far, they got all kinds of problems. They are just a mess. Quite frankly, I still find it very encouraging to read this when I see how screwed up they were, because I think there's hope for us. What's really interesting about it is that apparently you can still be screwed up and God still loves you, and that God will still use you. Now, we kind of got the love part down. But the use part, uh, people kind of start struggle with it. Well, God can't really use me because I'm a slob, you know, or, you know, God can't help me make a difference in somebody else's life because, you know, I ran over my neighbor's cat five times and never told him, you know, or whatever the thing was. I shouldn't, stuff I shouldn't be doing, I'm doing, and God can't use me. Apparently, God will still use you even if you've got issues, all right? These guys had a long list of seriously, obscenely, uh, off-the-chart issues, but yet nonetheless, when you get here, you see that they are very spiritually active, and God is using them and moving through them. Um, uh, I'm convinced that one of the reasons we don't see more of this is the church still, and I'm not just saying just this church, but all Western churches by and large, are not nearly as connected as they should be. I believe God shows up in these unique ways when we really spend time with each other, when we really get to know each other, pray for each other, be for, there for each other, is when God starts showing up. People who want these kinds of miracles uh, but hardly ever come to church or come to church occasionally or they do come to church and as soon as the, you know, the last amen hits, boom, they're gone and they would rather spend you know, time away from people of faith than with people of faith uh, they're just not going to experience this stuff. It is what it is. They can cry and moan about it, but it's just the reality. You really want God to start showing up in your life and using you, and you want to start experiencing God doing some of these really cool things, you've got to connect with other believers on a fairly regular basis and be very connected to them. So anyway, so he's been talking about all these uh, incredible things. Then he pauses for a minute. He says, now you've got to remember, the most important thing is that we love people. Remember that whole chapter 13, everybody reads it in weddings, you know. Uh, he's putting that in the context that even if God's doing all these great things, the most important thing is that we love people. Then he goes on, and in chapter 14 now of this letter, he starts talking about um, how to conduct their gatherings, if you will. Now, their gatherings are not anything like our gatherings today. Uh, the closest we could do to this is if we like had you know, like a prayer time, you know, uh, where we'd allow people to just kind of sit around and fellowship with each other and different people could pray and different people could read from the Bible and have different words. That's about, about the closest uh, I think we could get to that. And actually, 
It's kind of encouraging as I'm reading this, thinking, man, maybe we need to start getting back to that more. But, uh, but as far as our worship services, our, I don't know anybody's worship service, quite frankly, other than the, the very, 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 very small amount of people who are involved in like home churches where they still practice some of these things. Um, for the bulk of the last two, I don't know how long it took before the church stopped doing all this kind of stuff, but the bulk of the last 2,000 years, Christian services have been pretty, you know, this is how we do it, and someone preaches, and then we respond, we have communion, and you know, then we leave, you know, whatever it is, a typical Christian service, which is to this day. These guys, it was very different. Clearly, they met for long periods of time. We will eventually get back to the book of Acts, where we read one time that Paul is preaching and talking so long, somebody up in one of the lofts falls asleep, and he plummets to his death. Man, I'm talking about people dropping dead when you're preaching. I mean, that's bad. I would think, you know, if people are dropping dead while I'm preaching, maybe we should wrap things up. Paul doesn't. It's hilarious. He goes over and by the power of the Holy Spirit raises the guy back to life and then keeps preaching. Good Lord. I think there was a sign there. Shut up already. But, you know, so they had, you know, their idea of getting together for church is way different than what we do today. Uh, many, uh, there, there are lots of churches that still, well, not so lots, lots when I grew up. I remember when, when I grew up in church, you'd go and church was an all morning deal. You know, you get early and you'd have a service or something, a gathering, and then you'd have Sunday school and then you'd have the extended, uh, you know, service and the pa- pastors would routinely preach for 45 minutes to 90 minutes. You guys remember these days? I mean, this is what I grew up back, back when the dinosaurs still roamed the earth, all right? And that's, that's the way it was, you know, in the 70s, 60s, 70s. Um, and, uh, and then we'd break and then we'd all come back to church again <laughs> and go for hours yet that night. Anybody remember those days? I mean, a lot of us were raising that stuff, right? Well, now, man, you got about threaten people within an inch of hell to get them to come for an hour on Sunday morning. So it's kind of a drag to say the least, but uh, clearly uh, when these guys met, it was a big deal and they, it was kind of a free for all and they'd sit and everybody, different people, there wasn't just one preacher per se, lots of people could get up and preach and teach what they would call prophesy and uh, other people would do this, that and the other. But one of the things that this group of people did, uh, they were very much into speaking in tongues something that is emphasized primarily in uh, Pentecostal churches today uh, still, you know, is this thing of speaking in tongues. Uh, and you really kind of have three kinds of churches, I guess you could say. You have those who are very much pro-speaking in tongues, they really encourage it, and then those who are very much against it and preach very harshly against it. And proud of the bulk today that is kind of, they just don't say a whole lot about it, you know. They, uh, and then it gets into matter do they allow it or not allow it. Certainly we allow it. We should be encouraging it more, quite frankly, I think. Virtually everybody on our staff uh, knows about this. Most, uh, all of them have, have this experience. Many of you have had this experience. A lot of people come to our church don't have this experience. We try to encourage people to go through the classes, and then you get into the Holy Spirit class, where they talk about it. So if you've never, gee, I've never spoken in tongues. I've never had this experience that, you know, this kind of cool thing happening, go to that class and get plugged in and you will find that we will point you in this direction. But we still would not be in the category of the real intense Pentecostal, you got to speak in tongues uh, kind of approach. We're very pro, but not, okay. Anyway, these guys were like seriously into it. And clearly they were so into getting together and speaking in tongues, Paul had to kind of put the kibosh on it. And so, okay, calm down, <laughs> all right? And then he goes through chapter 14 and starts talking about why it's better not to speak in tongues. In a gathering, now the people who are against speaking in tongues say, well, Paul in chapter 14 said, you know, it wasn't worth it, you shouldn't even mess with it. That's not what he says. We're gonna take a look very closely. We've been taking a look very closely at what he says. It's very pro. Uh, he's glad he sp- speaks in tongues more than any of them. He says, I wish you all spoke in tongues, all this kind of stuff. But in the gathering, Stop all the tongue speaking because people think you're crazy. 
is the point. Let us join in at verse six now. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as a pipe or a harp, how will anyone know what the tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? That's a great commercial that's been out for a while from Apple. You see the one where the guy plays the piano? He turns around to the other piano and every key is the same note. And he plays the exact same thing, but it's just, it's just, there's nothing. He turns around, he plays the same thing, just nothing, you know. The distinction, the differences was the point of the ad and certainly analogy that even Paul makes. Again, if a trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Well, you know, we don't call people to battle with trumpets anymore, but they did that back then. Why? They didn't have PA systems. <laughs> okay. They got, okay, you guys get ready to move forward. I mean, there was no way of doing that. They didn't have radios. They, someone would play a trumpet, and there was a very specific little sounds that they would make, and people would all know what to do. They would, I don't know what, you know, like, would be go forward or get the heck out of there or you know whatever that you know move to the left you know or you know that sounded more like the chicken dance you know so anyway this is everybody's always doing the chicken dance and they get killed so um this this is how they told everybody what to do by the trumpet doing their thing it's an analogy that really makes no sense to us so uh, so it is uh, with you, unless you speak intelligible, intelligible, I can't even say it, intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker's a foreigner to me. We don't understand each other. So it is with you, since you're eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So, uh, again, he's speaking in terms of the spiritual giftings uh, that would benefit the whole group. Now, he already talked about um, when you speak in tongues, you build yourself up. It's a very empowering thing. So he's, not, he, so he's not slamming it. He's just saying in a gathering, that's not the t- time or place for it. We don't allow that in our church. You start yelling and speaking in tongues in church, we're going to take you out of the church, all right? But people were thinking, you're a little crazy, which is what he says here in a minute. So for this reason, uh, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what they say. Now, again, you have to remember, this isn't services like what we have now and really haven't had for the bulk of the last 2,000 years. Everybody doesn't get a chance to get up and say whatever they want to say. You can't. I don't care if you're speaking in English. You get up, start talking in church, we're going to drag your butt out of here. You don't get to do that. They did that. It's just, so a lot of this quite frankly, doesn't really apply. Some of it does. We'll, we'll glean as we go. So they would all of a sudden, someone would get up and then just start speaking in tongues because they love to speak in tongues. Well, what, no one's going to understand what's going on. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. So these guys were in these gifts of the Spirit where they'd get up and they'd speak in tongues and then God would give them the revelation of what they just said and they would tell everybody what they just said. The point is, Without the interpretation, you just speak in tongues doesn't mean jack when everybody's gathered together. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, that's a good thing, but my mind is unfruitful, which actually, this is actually a good thing. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you don't know what to pray. You feel absolutely frustrated. You feel absolutely overwhelmed. You don't know what to say. Oh, God, help me, God. As far as you can get. The beauty of when you can pray in, uh, in the spirit, when you speak, speaking tongues to God, your spirit is talking to God. It totally bypasses your brain, which for most of us, myself particularly, my brain tends to get in the way. But this is in faith, right? The whole thing about faith is your brain gets in the way. I mean, if we didn't have this, you know, we'd probably see a whole lot more miracles. But it messes with our heads. So this, when you pray in the spirit, it kind of bypasses. So it's, that's a good thing. Again, we encourage this. Uh, make sure you go to this class and... Uh, and, and uh, see what happens. So anyway, um, so he says, if, what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit. No, I'm sorry. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind's unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit. So he does do this. But I will also pray with my understanding. 
I will sing with my spirit. So just start singing melodies to God instead of knowing the words. It's a beautiful thing. Some of you guys remember words. The melody songs, you can't remember the words anyway because they're not sticking it up on a screen for you anymore. You know, they just add the words, just speak it in tongues and they just sing to God. But he'll also sing with his understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else uh, who's now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they don't know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. No one else knows what you're saying. He says, for those who might think he was down on speaking in tongues, he hasn't been down on it at all, just in the context of a gathering. Because he goes on, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. These are often, these verses are pulled out of context like this of people who are the anti-tongue people. Well, Paul said, I'd rather speak Five words in, 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 in tongues, and 10,000 words in tongues. So he didn't really believe in tongues. Really? That's not what he says. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. Okay? But in the gathering, I'd rather speak five words everybody can understand. What he's really trying to say, bottom line, is the speaking in tongues is really a personal experience. This is really a personal thing. Everything, unless you can interpret or someone has, uh, you know, God gives them the understanding of what you're saying. A lot of these gifts of the Spirit are for helping somebody else, for blessing someone, having faith, understanding, knowledge, wisdom, all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to tongues, not that they're not certainly down on it. If anything, they're all into it up to their eyeballs. But it's really a personal thing. This is like, wow, all right? Uh, and, 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 and he talks about how it builds you up, how you talk, you bypass your understanding, you talk directly to God, you can have this spiritual and emotional release again. Fabulous experience. I really encourage you uh, to say, well, Pastor, what if I pray and, and, I, and, and they pray for me and I don't speak in tongues? Well, then you don't. I mean, it's no big deal. But uh, I would certainly, I'm just telling you, it's a wonderful thing. Something you should actually desire because this will help you on a personal level. Outside of a personal level, Paul is kind of poo-pooing it. You're understanding where I'm coming from here? So that's the way he's talking about it. Uh, because that, that's that just between you and God, that kind of intimate thing, which is very, very cool. All right, so... Now, brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Otherwise, your doing's not making any sense. In the law, it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. He quotes from the Old Testament. Tongues then, he said, now this is very confusing here. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, this speaking clearly and edifying people, uh, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, the reason I say this is odd, because now everything he says from here on out contradicts what he just says. I'm sure it makes sense to somebody. You know, I read these guys, just like you all go online and read these guys, and I, you know, don't send me the, your clips from their quotes. I get it, I can read. But they don't really, their explanations don't make any sense. You know, they kind of dance around the wagon and stuff like that. I don't know if it's the way they spoke 2,000 years ago. I don't know if it's a translation thing. All I know is that makes sense. Okay, I can, tongues are for unbelievers, a sign, as prophecies for believers, makes plenty of sense. But then he says, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, which should be a sign to what? Unbelievers. And inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not all say that you're out of your mind? Wait a minute. I thought you just said this is a sign. But then he gets on him, don't do this. So I, I don't know what he means by it. I'll just put it in the list of 40 things I don't understand in this letter. All right. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, which you just said is for the church, but if an unbeliever hears it, and what's happening when you're prophesying? You're speaking and you're revealing things. You know, I, if you've ever sat in a service where myself or someone else is speaking, the Holy Spirit's just present, and they just start reading your mail. You know what I'm saying? They know what the stuff you've been going through, and wow, and how did he know that? And you guys got a microphone in my house, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it just has such an impact on him. To the unbeliever, when he hears that, he says, they will be convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, and the secrets of their heart will be laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, truly God is really among you. So, I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand. It all makes sense to some degree, I guess. Uh, but there you have it. Now, what shall we say then, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, 
a song, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation, and then everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Again, this just, that's not how we do things here, and I don't know of any place where they do this, quite frankly. Maybe in some Bible studies, you know, I, I don't know, or maybe some home church groups that like 0.05% of churches are like that, um, where they allow everybody to have something to say. Or I don't know, don't Amish kind of do this? They, you know, they don't speak in tongues per se, but when everybody gathers, everybody's kind of allowed to share something. I don't know, I don't know how it works. Huh? The Quakers kind of did. So there were some of this, but by and large. So anyway, he's saying, when you all come together, everybody has a song and, you know, and it used to be like that, you know, even kind of back when I remember, someone said, man, I just have a song I want to sing. We'd let them sing, you know. We don't let you do that anymore because if you suck, we don't want to hear it. You know what I'm saying? We try to have very talented people sing, you know. <laughs> it used to be in churches forever. <laughs> Randy, you'll remember this. Any of you guys been in churches for the last 40 years will remember the time where um, we would allow virtually anybody on the platform as long as they had a good heart. And there'd be people who really loved Jesus, had a good heart, but they couldn't sing to save their lives. And, and it sounded like two cats trying to kill each other. And, uh, but everybody said, well, you know, God bless them. They're just, you know, they're just, they, you know, it's in their heart and they're just, they want to bless people. And that's what the Bible says. I, I know I get that, but don't do that here. <laughs> Yeah, they make a joyful noise. They use different verses. You know, I know I can't sing and do, but I just, I'm making a joyful noise to the Lord. I'm yelling, sit down. You know, but anyway. Uh, we don't let you come with a revelation to sit up and start talking to the church. We don't any of these things. We just, and not just us, I don't know anybody, quite frankly, who does this or has even done it by and large for the last 2,000 years. So it's really kind of curious about this whole thing. So anyway, what he's saying, if you're going to do this, and you all gather together, and of course, they're there all day long, so I guess that's why they were doing it. If anyone speaks in a tongue, just two or at most three. Only two or three guys can get up and blah, 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 in tongues, and, and then you should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. And he says, if there's no interpreter, then you got to sit down and shut up. All right? And just speak to yourself and God, which is the emphasis of tongues is really more the personal you and God type thing. So he puts a limit on it, two or three times, and that's only if you can pray and God will show you what you said or someone else, the Lord reveals to him what you said. Okay, fine. So there again, he's limiting, he's trying, because apparently they were like really tongue-talking crazy people here. And they would get together, everybody just start picking on his tongues and doing all this stuff, and he's trying to say, look, people are going to think you're crazy. Okay, which, by the way, is one of the knocks that I have on more I was going to say balls to the walls, but I won't say that. Uh, unrestrained <laughs> Pentecostal services where people are just going crazy. And they're running and screaming and shouting and so on. Some of you have been Pentecostal. Have you ever been to a service? Those of you in Pentecost, where someone would just start running around the church and just howling. Whoa! They just start running and stuff. Remember the, the thing, you're a bunch of holy rollers. The reason they used to call because they, even, though, even your relatives will say you're a holy roller coming to this church, you know. But the reason they say that is because there were times where people literally did that. <laughs> they would literally roll around on the ground and shout and howl and, and all kinds of stuff and crawl on all fours, bark like dogs. Do you remember the dog barking? <laughs> You don't want to know what he said. So anyway, uh, they would bark like dogs, do all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> and this was known as, boy, the spirit of God's really moving. Really? Because I think Paul would say, people are going to think you're crazy. Which is pretty much why hardcore Pentecostal churches tend to be very small to this day. They've got a handful of the big ones and stuff like that, but by and large, and even those guys, the reason they're because they put some kind of taps on the stuff. But these people are just, you know, snake handlers. You've heard of this? It's because they literally handled snakes. They would pick up snakes and just, oh, praise God, and yell at the snakes and stuff, and I got faith a snake won't bite me. Really, you're a moron, all right? <laughs> Crazy stuff that is just off the charts. And by the way, everything I just mentioned to you is not found here. 
You don't see them running around picking up snakes. You don't see them crawling on their knees, howling like dogs. You don't see them rolling on the floor, going nuts, okay, and just being uncontrollable. I just, and again, I love my Pentecostal brethren, <laughs> but some of y'all are just crazy. <laughs> and uh, we just, we don't do that here. Uh, you do that here, we're going to drag you out <laughs> very quickly. And you can say, you're quenching the Holy Spirit. No, we're just getting rid of you. Okay? And, uh, and, and there's stuff, you know, again, it's not even biblical. You can't even find anywhere in the Bible to do this stuff. Uh, remember the laughing? Oh, spirit laughing. What that would be is, I would be, the pastor could be telling the most serious, heart-rendering, emotive message. And right in the middle, someone in the middle was just like going, <laughs> like they're crazy. I'm serious. And they would let him do it because they said, well, the spirit of joy fell on him. Really? You crazy. <laughs> and I've been in churches where they, at, at a time it was kind of like the hip thing, you know? It was like people would do that everywhere. They just, no matter where in the service, they would just break out laughing. <laughs> now, you can imagine someone coming to church for the first time, your Catholic parents, <laughs> and somebody behind them in the middle of, for no reason at all. <laughs> oh, man. They know you in a cult now, you know what I'm saying? Because they're just crazy people. But they, they come up with this stuff and say that it's spiritual and it's God. The problem is there's little to no evidence of it. And while I'm on the subject, let me jump on one thing that I think is one of the most outrageous, absurd, and highly... Everything I just mentioned to you is very out there. But this one also is highly accepted in Pentecostal circles or anything charismatic is this idea of being slain in the spirit. Yeah. People just falling over. When the spirit of God's really present, you just fall over. And someone has to catch you. Or you'll hit your head on the cement. And we've got to call the, the ambulance. Now, there's people who will swear to me. Maybe some of you here say, man, that happened to me. It was God. Okay. I'm just saying it sounds crazy to me. And I will say, by and large, those who say it really happened to them is very few. Most of it is absolute, pure, unadulterated baloney. I've been in these services. I've seen these guys. They're pushing people over. They're hammering people. Really, the Holy Spirit comes and just knocks people unconscious. So that unless you catch them, they're going to break their heads open. What is that? And it's not found in the Bible. Now, they come up with a few places where, you know, they came to arrest Jesus and said, we're looking for Jesus. I'm he, and they fell back, okay? All right, if you're like the devil, maybe in the presence of God, you fall back, okay? Or when John the Baptist, or John the, the Revelator, saw Jesus on the Isle of Patmos, he said, I fell to the ground like dead. They said, well, that, that's not slain the spirit. He literally felt like he was going to die because he was scared to death. When the Bible talks about people who fall down in fear, that's not slain in the spirit. That's people who are freaked out. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a room by yourself and you're convinced, not only the only person in that room, you're the only person in the entire house and you're sitting quietly and somebody walks up behind you and says, hey, ah, you freak. Because you thought you were alone, right? Well, a lot of times, you know, whenever these people would have like revelations and they see angels, they would say, oh, it would be so cool to see angels. Apparently not. Because it would freak the bejeebies out of all these people. They were terrified. Remember the Christmas story of the angels? Oh, you know, to these shepherds? The Bible says that freaked the snot out of the shepherds. I mean, they didn't even have electric lights for heaven's sakes. All of a sudden, the sky lights up. Oh, they like all drop dead with a heart attack. Now Paul, or not Paul, but John, he's on the, on the Isle of Patmos. He's all by himself. He's like exiled on this island. Talk about being the lone guy on the, in the house. You're like the only guy on the island. All of a sudden, Jesus appears in front of him. Woo! He says, I like to die. 
Okay, he falls down. So these people who say that this is signs of being slain in the spirit, it's absurd. It's not, there's no such thing. I don't think there is. And if you think there is, and I'm offending you, too bad. I, I, it, just, it, is, it is without biblical. Wouldn't you think, so, oh, brother, when the spirit of God really comes, that's what happens to people. Really? Wouldn't you think when Jesus is walking around, everybody would just be flopping over? Right? I think Jesus had a fair amount of the spirit on him, wouldn't you say? How come nobody's flopping over when he's walking around? There's no sign of the apostles and stuff like that walking in the room. They're cracking their heads open. Anyway, stuff ticks me off. And we don't do that here. <laughs> you do that here. Other people who are just they're programmed to do it now. Not so much anymore. You ever pray for somebody and they start going over? I grab them. I pray for them. They start falling. No, 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 don't hold it right there, you know. And I don't know. And of course, then they got the people who are their job is to catch. They're called the catcher. It's their catcher ministry. There's probably churches are going to cancel me now. Come. Because <laughs> I just slammed everything they believed. Good thing most of them don't watch this. But, uh, uh, and it's fine. If that's what they want to do, fine. I'm just saying, we don't do that here. We, I think it's absurd. Uh, but they have catchers, and then they have people who have the ministry of covering the lady's legs with a cloth. Because she's on the floor, you know. You know if you're seeing stuff you shouldn't be seeing, right? <laughs> well, I've seen these people. They'll fall over. I don't know if the camera can follow me here, but they'll, they'll fall flat backwards. And uh, they'll throw the thing on them, and then when the guy goes to pray for the next person, they're kind of... And back down again. <laughs> really? I thought you were out. <laughs> They're adjusting the claws. Moving. And here's the sad, as much fun as I have mocking them, and they're sweet, but listen, I, I've, I've really, I've go to a lot of churches like this. I used to, apparently, up until now. But uh, um, they're great people. They're wonderful people. They still have huge churches around the world. And they win souls and stuff like that. But I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm not going to join part of this we're going to make stuff up club. It's not biblical. It's not in there. It's just not. And here's what I think is very, very sad. Because all of these people know that we're supposed to be experiencing the power of God. And rather than actually experiencing the power of God now, I think now we make it up. And we're playing this game. This started in the 80s, by the way. About the 80s, 80s and 90s, and that, you know, you watch on TV and TBN, and everybody's falling over, and everybody's, you know. I've been in these meetings. Talk about mind control over groups of people. It's stunning. Of course, they're all expecting it for it to happen, and they're all falling over. And really? How about people really get saved? How about people really get healed? How about, yeah, you blow on them, they fall over. Uh, all kinds of stuff. There's just a lot of stuff that is done in the name of the Holy Spirit that at a minimum, it's not biblical. Now, they can argue, saying, Pastor, I know it's not in the Bible, but we really believe that's what God said. Okay, then we'll just have to agree to disagree. I don't hate these people. I love these people. But we don't do that here, and we're not going to do it. You start doing this, and we're going to take you out. All right? No, actually, we'll let you fall on the ground. Then the, then, then the ambulance will take you out. <laughs> Good night. We don't need to be making stuff up. Well, I can't help it. I can't. The Spirit of God just hits me. I can't help it. We're going about to deal with that in a second. So, someone else is speaking in tongues to everybody, just two or three backs. Again, we don't do any of this, but that's, that was the rule for that group. And then two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. A few things here. Um, well, let's keep reading. Let me back up. Then he says, and if a revelation comes on someone who's sitting down, the first person should shut up, sit down, so the other guy can speak. Uh, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged, okay? So uh, he says two or three prophets should speak, but he doesn't really put the limit on them where he says, you know, we don't, it clearly must not be only two or three all day because he says, I don't know, it's two or three at a time on a subject. It's hard to know what he's talking about. Uh, you know, two or three guys should be able to opine maybe on a subject, uh, but he encouraged them so that you could all prophesy at some point. You know, the Spirit of God's falling on people, showing them stuff, giving them insights and revelation. I mean, this is really cool, 
Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, yeah, boy, maybe we ought to be having smaller Bible gatherings where we can allow for these kind of things. But in just regular worship services, we don't allow these kind of things, all right? And then he says this. Uh, he says, the, the, the prophet should speak and the other should weigh carefully what is said. Now, people who claim to be prophets and the Lord has told me, this is what the Lord says, and they speak like this, uh, uh, they expect you to just to capitulate to whatever they said. But the Bible doesn't say you just buy it. Someone comes up to you and says, man, God told me you're supposed to do la, 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 frazzle, shagging, frazzle, and then you run out and just do it. No, 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 no. You listen to these guys, and then you weigh carefully what is said. The others should judge. Actually, it's the King James uses the word judge. Weigh carefully means to judge. You know, you got to listen to these people and say, well, are, is what they're saying right? Okay? I mean, just because someone claims to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you got to buy everything that they say, which you should not be doing. All right? Um, so that's very clear. And then he says this in verse 32, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. So the people who say and claim, I can't control myself because the spirit of God is on me, it's, it's just not biblical. In, in fact, it's the exact opposite. You Nobody falls uncontrollably. That doesn't happen. Satan, on the other hand, does possess people. They lose control. But there's one thing about the spirit of God, you don't lose control in these situations. Uh, I had to run around the church howling at the top of my lungs during that last song because I couldn't control myself. Yeah, you can control yourself. What you're saying is not true. Uh, I have to stand up and just start speaking in tongues for 20 minutes in the middle of Pastor Mark's sermon. No. Well, I couldn't control it. Yes, you can. So the idea that these people do all these things and they claim that the Spirit of God does this to them and they have no control, they actually kind of celebrate that, you know. And I get the culture. I get the idea of, I, I can't help but dance, you know. Because, uh, you know, it's like you get a really good song. Yeah, yeah man, I got this boogie, you know. You know. Well, you might feel highly motivated. I get it in that context. But even then, you can control yourself. All right? Um, all right. All the Pentecostals are mad at me now. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, and in all the congregations of the Lord's people. So he's talking about order and worship. Then he says this really hot button thing that, uh, especially in our culture today with feminism and stuff like that. Verse 34, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. Well, first of all, that's kind of odd. He would do this. He says we don't live by the law. We're set free from the law, but he often quotes, he did it just a minute ago about speaking in tongues. He quotes the law as justification for different things. I don't understand. I don't know. I'm a nobody. What do I know? But that's what he does. Um, but oftentimes, remember, you don't really understand sometimes what they're saying until you keep reading what they're saying to learn the context. It's different than English. And you have to understand, every language is different. I think one of the reasons that we struggle with some of this is because we speak English and we don't speak Greek or Hebrew or whatever it was. Their writing style, this is real strong in the Old Testament. Oftentimes they would speak in the Old Testament and you had no idea what they were talking about until like, you know, a chapter or two in. Was, oh, oh, that's what's going on. They would give you the stuff and then tell you. It's kind of like the difference between Spanish and English. Actually, English is really one of the few languages that actually gives the uh, adjective before the noun. In other words, we say white house. In Spanish, it's the house that's white. Okay? Uh, in virtually every other language, it's the house. They always have the thing afterwards. You know, so I don't know if it's that kind of thing that they would do this and then give the, the context a little bit later. That's why when you're reading the Bible, you don't really quite get it. You got to keep reading sometimes to get the picture, not just one verse at a time, but read through it and get the context because he's still talking here. Here's the context. He says, uh, the women are allowed to speak. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. So what he's talking about is that because he just said they're not allowed to speak. But remember when he talked about the hair thing, about the hat thing, women should not pray or prophesy without their heads covered. What does that mean? They prayed and they prophesied, just like these other guys were prophesying. He said, Pastor, would you allow a woman to preach on a Sunday morning? Absolutely. Why? Because women can prophesy, because that's what they did. They had deaconesses in the church, very clear in the New Testament. These women, I don't think, walked around like mutes, trying to telepathically give you the word of God. These people spoke. So the context here, and virtually 
And, and here's where a lot of the theologians all tend to agree, that the culture of the day, because these were these open meetings and stuff like that, while someone was talking stuff, people would raise their hands and ask questions. They just did. We don't do that. You have to ask me later if you have a question. You raise your hand in the middle of my sermon, I ain't answering Jack, okay? Which, by the way, if you ever have a question on these Wednesday night things, you can certainly raise your hand. I would certainly not, you know. <laughs> and it would tick off Paul, but I even let the ladies do it too. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, but a lot of it was cultural. It just, it has, because what he goes on, he says, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. In that context, it's disgraceful for a woman particularly to challenge a man. It was just, it was just disrespectful. For guys preaching, the woman says, what are you talking about? I don't know if I agree with that, you know. Oh, that was, especially in that culture. We're talking Eastern culture here. It's really kind of dis- disgraceful even today, <laughs> to be honest with you. But uh, uh, so that's the context there. It's not that women are forbidden to preach or teach or do any of these things in the churches because clearly they did with the different sets of rules, rules that also we don't follow today because we don't make women wear hats and stuff like The only people I'm even aware of, you got to get into Eastern Europe and further east or even to this day, not just, you know, Ethan Orthodox, but even Baptist churches and stuff from the east, they do require women to wear veils on their heads or hats uh, or they'll really get on them when they come to church. Uh, you know, and the men are not allowed to wear hats in church and stuff like We kind of all... A lot of us will remember, respectfully, you should take off your hat when you go to church. But even with the younger guys, they don't do that. And even a lot of the older guys, you know, a lot of guys come to church, they have their hats on the whole time. We just don't make a big deal out of it. I don't know why. Paul would probably be ticked at all of us. But I don't know any church other than in the Eastern Europe and further off that make a big deal out of it. Uh, and I don't know what the point is. We read his arguments for it. It doesn't make any sense to us. The point being, though, is he's saying you need to have follow these rules while you pray and prophesy, talking about women. So this speaking thing has to be in the context of what he says here. They're not allowed to speak. If they want to ask questions, tell them to ask their husbands at home because it's kind of disrespectful uh, for them to do it in, in that setting. I will say as kind of a footnote here, uh, <laughs> that's not our culture, and I get it. But uh, you know, when I first started pastoring, one of the first things I did, because all churches had the leadership of the church was just always men and women weren't allowed to be leaders. Well, I came in, I'm so enlightened. Yeah. So I said, well, we're gonna have the husbands and wives come to these meetings and they can share. But it didn't take too terribly long before I started noticing something. When their wives are present, the wives do all the talking and the husbands hardly say anything. Now, I don't know what dynamic that is or why that is, but it was very, very strong. Uh, some of these guys didn't know if they could talk. You know, now, I'm not that way because I never shut up. Okay, but I'm, I'm unusual now. There are men who are very vocal, but by and large, and here was the amazing thing. When we started getting away from this and started getting some guys together, I was stunned at how much they had to say. I was amazed, seriously. I mean, there's a lesson there. The lesson there is this. Ladies, if you want a man to lead, you got to get out of the way. And in these meetings when all these ladies would just start having these opinions about this, this, and this in the church, the guys would just sat there and, you know, just let them talk. I got to live with her. I ain't saying nothing, you know. <laughs> so, uh, and, and that's really the strong. So, oh, that thing that we used to do, we don't really do much anymore. Uh, again, it's not that we forbid women in leadership roles. It's just uh, the, the way we want to encourage men to step up and be the kind of leaders the Bible talks that they should be. I per- this is anecdotal, this is not biblical, this is just in the context of this. I have noticed that you put the girls in the same room with these boys, and if they're chatty girls, the guys shut down. Even with a man leading them and trying to encourage them to talk, they by and large won't do it. Get the girl out of there, he starts to step up. Uh, so that's mainly why we just don't do that anymore. <laughs> I, I suppose some psychologist somewhere has an explanation for this. I don't know. Quite frankly, I don't care. I just know. You know, for example, I've learned not to stick my tongue in a light socket. I may not truly understand why that is. I just don't do it. So there's some things you learn. I don't, you don't have all the explanations for it. Uh, but clearly in that context, and I think it is true, that oftentimes when for a man to really lead the way a lot of you want them to lead 
at some level, you have to get out of the way. You have to allow for it. Say, well, he never says it or does anything. Well, no, because you're quick to jump on everything. All right? So now everybody's got to negotiate this out on their own homes and stuff, and Paul says, do it at home. I understand it, but it's true. You know, it's also interesting. I was talking to someone who is a, a member of a, one of these uh, uh, service groups, like an optimist club or something. I, I can't remember what it was, uh, what group it was. Anyway, he says, we're one of the few groups that still only allow male members. And we continue to grow, and we continue to grow. When the Lions Club and everybody else, all these things, and the women demanded it, and they started letting them in, all of a sudden, their membership started dropping. And they continue to drop to this day. They're not anywhere where they used to be. These service groups used to be full of men in the community who would rise up and do really impressive things in their community. Uh, anywhere where they had clubs that were all men and they started letting women in, the men, would just, they just get out of the way. I mean, I don't know what it is. I'm not that way because I really can't relate to it. It doesn't bother me at all. Uh, but for some reason, you get women who really start getting chatty and all this stuff. It's amazing how many men just shut down. The lesson here, again, I will repeat for the fourth time. You want them to lead, you got to get out of the way. I don't think that's really the context here. I think just here that I think in that culture it was really disgraceful to challenge a man publicly. All right? We're just, <laughs> I guess, still kind of disgraceful, <laughs> disgraceful today. I'm not just challenging anybody publicly, it's a little disgraceful. But, uh, you know, my wife and I were talking about this last night. Uh, it's amazing how disrespected men feel when they're telling a story and the wife hears that he's saying something inaccurate in the story and then she corrects him in front of other people. No, it wasn't four guys, there were only three. You know, no, no, it wasn't Tuesday, it was Thursday afternoon. And, and, and you all know what I'm talking about. You hear us, he doesn't quite get the story and you gotta quick give the story in front of everybody. That's really insulting to a man. And men start to talk less and less, you know, I'm pretty sure the exact finite detail. Now, if he's telling people that he was in Hawaii and he's never left Green Bay, you might want to bring that up. All right? Something major. But in this, you, know, you don't need to be in interjecting. No, that's not right. No, that's not the way it happened. There was this, you know, just for some reason, men have very fragile egos. I'm in that list as well. That stuff just crushes me. And uh, we don't, you know, ought to be a little careful on that. All right. Now, Paul gets defensive about what he just said. Now, have you noticed this so far? When he talked about marriage and how he's just kind of all over the place on that, he got defensive on that. He said, listen, I believe I have the spirit of God. I'm no dummy. Said, okay. You know. All right. And then when he talked about the hair thing, covering your heads and stuff like that. Look, we don't have any other rules. If anybody wants to make a big deal, what's the big deal? He got defensive about that. And now here we are again. Boom, he gets defensive about this one. Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it's reached? If anybody thinks they're a prophet or otherwise gifted in the spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores them, they themselves will be ignored. Ow! So he really kind of just, you know, there's a few of these things, and by and large, they're all areas to this day that most churches don't listen to much. You know, he was really strong about it. Remember, he's trying to defend himself to these people about issues they were arguing about. I pretty much can tell you what ones I think they were arguing about. It's when he starts doing this, you know, and he would be real strong about it. Uh, what's that? Yeah, trying to set them straight. But again, I mean, some of the stuff is really debatable at some level. Even his arguments on why to do these things doesn't, Makes it, we try, people have tried to understand what he's saying. Uh, we don't know if it's the culture thing, the language thing, whatever, but it's just really, really hard to understand. And he really gets strong about these things, but not to the point where he says, if you do this thing, you're going to go to hell kind of stuff. And he'll do that from time to time. That we all listen to, you know, the moral stuff. But this stuff, and, and, and this is kind of unique with Corinthians. Not very many other letters does he get into the weeds about how to run your services, who can speak, who can't, you know, how many could say this. Uh, he gets really into a lot of detail in the Corinthians here. Uh, some of it's rather difficult to understand. The good news is most of his writing, good news I say, is most of it, he doesn't get into this. He really stays clearly on how to live a Christian life, about the theology of Christianity, what grace is all about. He was brilliant in, in Galatians about how we're set free from the old law and we don't have to do these Old Testament rules anymore. All this stuff is really quite brilliant. It's for some reason, this, this, like I said, this Corinthian thing is like just, ugh, 
climbing over big rocks at times, uh, trying to understand everything. All right, so uh, verse 39, therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. I'm not sure what these people who forbid speaking in tongues do with that verse that says don't forbid <laughs> speaking in tongues. There's a lot of churches that do. They forbid it in any way, shape, or form. You, in fact, if they find out you're speaking in tongues, they kick you out of their church. Uh, anyway, all right, so now that's, that's kind of, thanks be to God, the end of all the uh, dealing with some of these most difficult issues. Now he gets back to just basic theology about the Christian experience. All right? I, for one, am glad. Chapter 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So what is the gospel? What is it that Paul said? It wasn't all this stuff. This is after the church, you know, quit doing this stuff, follow these rules. He gets real defensive on a few of them, which, interestingly enough, today most churches don't do, uh, you know. But once he gets past that, he gets back to the basic gospel. What was it that he preached? For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. We are reminded of this every Sunday when we take communion. This is what this is about. Jesus laid down his life for us. It was on the cross today. Uh, I don't know if anybody listens to talk radio. Anybody hear Hannity today? Uh, it was fabulous. He had uh, Phil Robertson from the you know, Duck Dynasty clan on there. And I think they spent a half hour just preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ on the show. Hannity's just asking him questions and, and what's his name's talking about? That Jesus Christ died for our sins on that cross. He lived that life, died, and was raised again, his resurrection. I mean, they just kept talking about this over and over again. It was really rather stunning. I'm wondering how many people are, you know, are even grasping what he's saying. But that's the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is Jesus has died for your sins. And, and as Robertson said today on the show, and the beauty is, uh, he's there to pardon any, for future sins. You know, nobody does this perfectly. Yeah, well, except me. <laughs> Not even close. Nobody does this perfectly. We all mess up. We all mess up. We all eventually say, do, think, act in some ways we should not. It's called sin. Now, I don't think, act, or say like I used to before I came to Jesus, you know, <laughs> Do y'all know who Phil Robertson is? This old geezer with the big beard. <laughs> so Hannity says, so what was your life like before? He said, well, I spent virtually all of my time getting drunk, doing drugs, or getting laid. <laughs> I'm laughing hysterically. And Hannity's Shannon, like, whoa, you know, we don't know how to talk like that on this show, but he's so plain, this guy, the way he talks. He says, that's what I used to do. He says, I don't do those things anymore, but I still sin. We, they're talking about sin and forgiveness and stuff. So and it's all made possible because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Okay, so he died for our sins according to the scriptures. Then he was buried and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. All right, this is the gospel. This is what we talk about fundamentally. Virtually every Christian church that's anywhere near worth its salt talks about these things. This is the fundamental truth of Christianity. Speaking in tongues, miracles, laying on of hands, hats, not hats, you know, who can talk, who can't talk, how many people can preach, all this other stuff is a mere shadow of the point of Christianity, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what gives us life. This is what makes us joint heirs with Christ. This is the stuff that he actually spent most of his time talking about in the rest of these letters to varying degrees. Uh, you know, so this is really what it's about. And then he goes on, he says, he was raised, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, okay, and then to the 12, the other apostles, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are, living, or who are still living, though some of them have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. Uh, then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, uh, and so he, he literally, he's talking about the people who saw Jesus physically after he had died. A lot of them, the bulk of them, still alive at this time. Clearly not alive now. Um, 
you know, so this was like a major, this is what he's saying to you, this is true. This is, we didn't make this up. There were a lot, it wasn't like three guys saw this and told the story later. There were hundreds of people who literally saw, interacted, and touched Jesus after he was crucified and raised from the dead. And a lot of these people were still testifying and it was having a major impact. Uh, and so it talks about all these people that Jesus physically appeared to. And then he says, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, this is interesting. Remember up to this point, he's, earlier he said, you know, I've seen the Lord. And we said, well, you know, is that when he had that vision of, stuff, of, of Jesus? Well, we get to hear now, it becomes very clear. At some point, Jesus literally, physically appears to Paul, just like he did to all these others. Uh, one theologian I was reading said they think that was kind of the last time that Jesus did that. I mean, I, I don't know. But uh, uh, so he puts it in the context of the last was to me as one abnormally born uh, because <laughs> he, Paul was a really, he was a righteous guy, but he was so mean to Christians. He tried to have him arrested, killed, destroyed. He says, the fact that I'm an apostle today and that Jesus revealed himself to me and that I'm part of this group that is now advocating for Christianity. And of course, he becomes the strongest advocate. He virtually writes the whole New Testament. Paul, it's really stunning what comes from this guy's mind here in his heart. Um, he says, but I, I'm one like that just, I kind of got adopted in this thing. I was kind of like this, <laughs> the ugly stepchild who got drugged into this. Because uh, he always, he talks about it other times, he kind of feels bad, like, I, you know, I don't even know why I'm here. And then he talks about it, he says, for I am the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with, it, with me. So whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. What? That Jesus Christ came to this earth, born of a virgin, lived his life, died on that cross, and was raised again, and was seen by hundreds of people with infallible, irrefutable proof that he in fact had raised from the dead. And this message to this day is what saves people. When you get that, you know, forget the hair thing. <laughs> Who can speak when and all this, all this stuff. I mean, that, that's not what saves anybody. That's, you know, he's just trying to give structure to the church, which oddly enough, as I keep repeating, I don't know of any churches who still function in this way, but he was dealing with it as it, as it was at that time. Uh, but what really is this core of Christianity that has transformed my life, I was 16 years of age. Gee, I asked Jesus Christ into my life. All of this became real to me. It was like a million pounds was lifted off of my shoulders. I know God touched me. And I've never been the same since. And many of you have the same kinds of stories. Some more dramatic than others. Some are very simple stories. And it doesn't matter how dramatic your conversion was. Uh, one of the greatest evangelists of world changers over the last 2,000 years in church history was uh, John Wesley, who founded the Methodist church. At the time when Wesley was in his heyday, man, so many people were converting. I mean, by the tens of thousands, he had an incredible impact. But when you hear his story, his story of conversion was this. I was listening to someone read a sermon that, John, or that uh, Martin Luther had wrote about faith. And all of a sudden he said, I, I kind of felt my heart strangely warmed. Really, how do you know it wasn't gas? I mean, just that's it, you know? That was it. His life was changed dramatically and had a massive impact. That still is felt to this day. The work that he did is really rather stunning. Uh, so, you know, don't feel bad. Well, gee, I, I just kind of feel good because I asked Christ in my life. Am I, is that a conversion? Yeah, Apparently, even you could change an entire nation, you know? Some of you were like really rascals like me, and some of you made me look like a choir boy, all right? Some people listening to me right now have got some nasty stories, and it's stunning. You want to hide your children after listening to those stories, you know? But, uh, uh, but God has totally changed them, all from this message. Jesus Christ, dying for the sins of the world, raised again from the dead, and alive to this very day. All right, so now uh, we'll pick this up next week. We've got two more Wednesdays, by the way, before we kick off for the rest of the summer, which I'm looking forward to. Sunshine for a while around here. But uh, 
then he starts dealing with them because there's people in the church who are saying now that there is no resurrection of the dead. Even they say, well, maybe Jesus rise, raised from, but none of us ever rise from the dead. I mean, once you're dead, you're dead, and that's over. And he says, no, 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 no. Jesus not only was raised from the dead, but we too will be physically raised from the dead. And this is some of the strong Christian theology which we'll get into about what happens after we die. So we'll, we'll, we'll jump into that next uh, Wednesday night. Uh, and all this stuff is very, very clear. Again, I'm just glad that we're done with the, uh, some of the strange stuff that he get real testy about. Uh, and then we're done with that letter. Okay, so I don't know if we'll time it out uh, by the end of uh, two weeks from now, but I'll certainly try <laughs> and try and wrap it up. Okay, that's enough for tonight. God bless you guys. See you Sunday and next Wednesday night.